I'm um, in the process of trying to finalize a book manuscript on what I call the modern Sephardic diaspora, and that is the late 19th and early 20th century movements of Ladino-speaking Jews from Ottoman and formerly Ottoman lands to Western Europe, to the United States, and to Mexico in particular, and beyond. In November 2018, I traveled to San Antonio, Texas for the annual meeting of the Middle East Studies Association of North America, where I sat down with historian Davy Mays to talk about her work on the experiences of Sephardic Jews during the era of global migration. The most distinctive trait of this community might have been their language, Ladino, which was an artifact of expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula centuries prior. This was a language that did not exist in the Iberian Peninsula prior to expulsion, but it's a language that was produced from the Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire once they migrated there. Coincidentally, when Sephardic Jews began setting out into the world, this Spanish heritage proved to be an asset. Mexican officials actually wanted to encourage the migration or the immigration of Sephardic Jews to Mexico because they deemed them as being assimilable, as being Spanish. And an asset in more ways than one. There were articles in the Ladino Press of New York advising people initially to go to Cuba in order to enter the United States, but in doing so to try to cover up that they were Jewish. Yet the meaning of Sephardic identity changed from context to context in an era of nativism and the rise of the ethnic nation-state. You know, the 20s were a time in Turkey of intense nationalism and intense nation-state building, and Jews were held up as being ungrateful guests for continuing to speak Ladino. But as Davy Mays argues, a state-centered approach to the immigrant experience risks emphasizing what mattered most to ordinary individuals. These are not people who are thinking in depth about, who am I? You know, what does it mean to be Sephardic? What does it mean to be Ottoman? And a fixation on Sephardic identity itself may obscure more than it reveals. It does homogenize a group of people and a group of individuals who had very different experiences, often based on city of origin and gender, as well as probably most strongly class. Nonetheless, as I learned through this conversation, the hypermobility and cultural liminality of Sephardic migrants make their stories perfect for answering questions about the diverse and precarious lives of migrants in an era of geopolitical transformation. How do people who come from a sort of imperial background make sense of this change into nationalizing states? Stay tuned. the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This interview is a special recording done in conjunction with our series Deporting Ottoman Americans. Visit our website ottomanhistorypodcast.com to learn about the full series and check out some of the episodes associated with today's interview. Our guest is Davy Mays. Davy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's very excited to have Davy Mays on the podcast today. She's an assistant professor of Judaic Studies and History at the Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And this conversation is going to be sort of a broad look at an area of Davy May's research focus, which is 
the history of Sephardic migration. We're going to look at Sephardic experiences of migration. And of course, it is a very long history of migration, one of the longer uh, sort of stories in, in our history of modern global migration. So let's just start off the conversation by establishing, like when we say Sephardic, who are we talking about? What's the origins of this community? And what do our listeners really need to know about this particular community and its experience? That's a great question, Chris, and it's actually a more complicated answer than you might think. Um, sometimes the term Sephardic is used to describe broadly all Jews who are not actually um, Eastern or Central European in ancestral uh, origins. Um, but ha where the term comes from and the way that I'll use it in this talk is uh, from the Hebrew word Sephardad, which has come to mean Spain. Um, and Sephardic Jews, uh, people who uh, have come to be called Sephardic Jews, trace their origins back to the Iberian Peninsula. We think that Sephardic Jews in the stories that they tell about their history, arrived in the Iberian Peninsula um, with Roman expansion into the peninsula. So they have a very long history of Jewish life in the, Sephard in, in the Iberian Peninsula. But who I'm referring to when I speak of Sephardic Jews in particular is the group of Jews descended from those who were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula from Spain in 1492 and later from Portugal. And many of these Jews went across the Mediterranean to Morocco. Some went to Amsterdam and to London. Um, and the group of people who I'm particularly interested in made their way to the Ottoman Empire after 1492. What was the size of that original exodus? It's not entirely certain because exit records were not kept in this period. Um, in terms of those who made it to the Ottoman Empire, we think probably around 50,000 people. Um, the larger number of Jews who left the Iberian Peninsula was greater than that. But many went, as I said, to North Africa, to the Italian Peninsula, or into uh, Northern and Western Europe. And right up until the present day, uh, one of the markers of the community is, of course, this linguistic uh, connection to Spain, both using sort of a vernacular Spanish language and, and having maybe Spanish-sounding names. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the markers of this, this particular community was indeed this language that came to be called either Judeo-Spanish, uh, Judesmo, Judeo, which means Jewish, or Ladino. Um, and this was a language that did not exist in the Iberian Peninsula prior to expulsion, but it's a language that was produced from the Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire once they migrated there. It's a language that continues to be spoken, although most of the um, native speakers of Ladino today are quite elderly. It's not a language that's generally spoken with children, and it's not taught in schools anymore. But it was spoken as the mother tongue of most Jews in the Ottoman Empire well up until the 20th century, until the end of the empire, and even into the early years of the Turkish Republic or in um, Greece and elsewhere in the Balkans where there were significant Sephardic populations, Ladino continued to be used as a mother tongue um, and often as the first mother tongue of Jews um, well up until the Holocaust. Um, it's a language that is, it sounds 
very similar to Spanish, but with some Portuguese pronunciations of certain sounds mixed in. Uh, traditionally, it was written in the Rashi characters of the Hebrew language, uh, so different from the type of Hebrew used in Israel, the type of Hebrew script used in Israel. And depending on the region where this was spoken, so most of these Sephardic Jews who spoke Ladino settled in the Aegean uh, regions, so places like Izmir, Salonika, Constantinople, Edirne, as well as up into the Balkan peninsulas, so Sarajevo, uh, Monastir, and smaller villages as well had significant Ladino-speaking populations. And where they lived, they would bring in local languages and incorporate that into Ladino as well. So Salonican Ladino, for example, has more Greek and more Italian mixed into it. And, uh, you know, Ladino from Izmir has a lot more Turkish words. For our listeners who are familiar with the, you know, very heterogeneous Ottoman Empire that, of course, was also a big area, but even on the local scale had a lot of sort of ethno-linguistic diversity going on, one of the more striking aspects of this particular community might be that they actually preserved this language, right? We're used to a specific religious group maybe having a different way of speaking the local language. But, you know, with all the migration that happened in history, it's not really that typical for a community to hold on to a language so many hundreds of years later when they're living as a small minority. Well, how did that happen? Uh, part of it has to do with sort of that the Ottoman Empire didn't particularly care about linguistic homogeneity between the different members or, or different constituent groups of the empire. So there wasn't until we get to the early the late 19th and early 20th century any sort of significant pressure from Ottoman authorities to stop speaking Ladino and to speak Ottoman Turkish or other languages. And it's really not in, until we get into the uh, nationalizing projects after the end of empire, at, after the end of the Ottoman Empire, where there's pressure on the Jewish community externally to stop speaking Ladino. Now, in the 1800s already, there was a sense among certain parts of the um, Ottoman Jewish elite, that Ladino was a jargon, that it was a corrupted language, and that they should stop speaking it in, in favor of French, for example, or try to hispanize it and make it more like Castilian Spanish as a way to um, sort of remove the, the connotation of jargon affiliated with that language. Um, but nonetheless, it, it continued to be spoken um, well up until the 20th, mid-20th century. And although it wasn't a prestige language in the Ottoman Empire, was there any sort of features of Mediterranean trade or life that sort of encouraged them to hold on to this language that was useful in any way sort of during that early modern period? There was indeed a push towards being multilingual among um, Sephardic Jews in the early modern period. In the years after expulsion from Spain, there was quite extensive trade between different nodes of the Sephardic diaspora throughout the Mediterranean and beyond that would extend from Ottoman lands through Italy, sometimes in the Iberian Peninsula with Jews or with conversos, with Sephardic Jews who had converted to Christianity but retained uh, familial connections and business connections with those who had left the Iberian Peninsula and continued to speak um, a form of Spanish. And so this, this shared Hispanic language facilitated trade across the Mediterranean 
and even up until um, up into the um, into Sephardic communities in Amsterdam and in Hamburg and in London, as well as into parts of the Spanish and Dutch Empire, Spanish, Portuguese and Dutch empires in the Americas. So in the early modern period, there was some uh, sense of linguistic cohesion early on across the entire Sephardic world, but gradually that sort of went out, that faded out of um, out of use. And the connections between what we call the Western Sephardic diaspora, so that focused on England, on Hamburg, and on Amsterdam and their empires, and the Eastern Sephardic diaspora and the, the Ottoman Mediterranean ceased to be as strong. And so, like many other communities of the Mediterranean, that sort of had these distinctive identities throughout uh, the period of Ottoman rule, uh, Sephardic people started setting out into the Americas increasingly with the great global migrations that begin to occur in the 19th centuries. And I know that in the 19th century, and I know that your work especially focuses on this sort of modern history of the Sephardic community. Could you tell us a little bit about your work, your ongoing project, what you're trying to do? Yeah, sure. So I'm um, in the process of trying to finalize a book manuscript on the sort of what I call the modern Sephardic diaspora. And that is the late 19th and early 20th century movements of Ladino speaking Jews from Ottoman and formerly Ottoman lands to Western Europe, to the United States, um, and to Mexico in particular and beyond. And what's particularly interesting to me in the the Sort of is the end of empire, and how do people who come from a sort of imperial background make sense of this change into nationalizing states? And particularly as Jews, as people who come to be deemed religious minorities, what does it mean when the place where you're living becomes foreign to you without you ever having left. And so one of the things that I find in my research is that a lot of um, Ottoman and post-Ottoman Jews, or this is particularly post-Ottoman Jews, and I use that term to sort of broadly speak of Jews from the lands that were part of the Ottoman Empire, you know, even if we're just speaking of Bulgaria, which is a little bit more distant than, say, Turkey, that Migration could be a reaction to nationalizing policies in the place that's places that they were leaving behind. Um, but, you know, it's, it's unsurprising. So many Ottomans left in the early 20th centuries and went abroad, as did um, Ottoman Jews. And so what I'm interested in in my work is doing a migrant-focused history. So looking at the trajectories of individual migrants as they left the Ottoman Empire and moved to different places. And, and looking at the level of individuals, how did they experience migration? How did they make sense of legal codes in the places that they were going to? How did they make sense of changing rules around visas and citizenship and documentation as they were moving in a period where very, all, basically all of the countries they were traveling through were increasingly obsessed with monitoring and restricting mobility and mobility documents. And what I find in my, what I uh, hope to show in my work at least, or what I found in my research, is that many of these individuals were hypermobile. They were constantly moving and they did that through recourse to the Sephardic network that existed, that stretched from the Ottoman Empire and formerly Ottoman lands through France in particular, but also Italy, to the United States, Cuba, Mexico, 
and Buenos Aires. And they were within this trans-Mediterranean, transatlantic network. They were conducting business. They were arranging marriages. They were doing trade. So there frequently would people who had ostensibly settled, say, in Mexico, go to New York for several months or go to Paris for several months and live with other Sephardic Jews there to acquire merchandise that they would then bring to Mexico. And so I see here this very strong diaspora that's created and perpetuated based on this, these linguistic ties of Judeo-Spanish. And this is facilitated through international travel, but also through the Ladino press in places throughout the Ottoman and formerly Ottoman Empire, as well as in places like New York, where they would publish letters and advice to immigrants and from immigrants about where to go at what, uh, what particular moment, what country was hospitable for Sephardic migrants at what particular moment in time, and what the legal requirements were for entering a particular country at a particular time. Um, and they would also do things like publish announcements of, you know, hey, so-and-so, left his wife in Manisa 18 years ago. She hasn't heard from him. He's this age, you know, he's between 45 and 50. She thinks he's in Nice, but maybe somewhere else. If you've heard of somebody who fits this description, please let us know. So also using the press um, to track down errant spouses or children who, you know, particularly after during World War I, communication became so fragmented that family members lost touch with each other. And then the press became a way of re-engaging with family members. It's fascinating. And, and in our episode of Deporting Ottoman Americans, we looked at the story of one such individual, right? These individual stories, someone who left Istanbul, uh, traveled to the U.S. illegally, illicitly, let's say, on a fraudulent passport and really moved around a lot before getting to the US. And it's kind of amazing how adept people were at this kind of mobility precisely in a time period within which borders are being created and becoming real and passports start to matter. And specifically countries are developing restrictive immigration policies that especially in the case of the United States are really about trying to curtail the millions of Jews who have entered the country right. over previous decades. Tell us more about how Sephardic migrants navigated that hostile landscape. One of the things more broadly that I think is so fascinating with this period and so valuable about looking at these individual stories is that when you look at what individuals are doing, it gives you a very different perspective than what you get if you're looking from the state's perspective. Because most countries, in what I've found, and I, I for this project I've done research in um, archives in Israel, uh, in Turkey, in Israel, in the United States, in France, in Mexico, and in Austria. S the states or the people who work in the state apparatus tend to sort of believe that or at least write that their policies of restriction and limitation are far more successful and pervasive than they were if you look from the perspective of individuals who are able to get around these restrictions. 
And one of the things that I love doing in research is finding all of these stories of people who are able to sort of manipulate the system that is of various countries trying to exclude them in order to enter that country. And I can give you a few examples of, you know, if you're interested, of what these types of things might look like. So, for example, after 1924, with the 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 quotas that were put into place in the United States against immigrants um, from throughout formerly Ottoman lands, as well as against Jews in particular, there was a loophole for those individuals who were coming from certain countries in Latin America, including Mexico and including Cuba. And so there is a rerouting of migrants who wanted to go to the United States um, instead, going to Cuba, and there are um, there were articles in the Ladino Press of New York advising people initially to go to Cuba in order to enter the United States. So this is a very simple loophole, um, but in doing so, to try to cover up that they were Jewish. And you spoke earlier, or you mentioned earlier, that a lot of these Sephardic Jews had Spanish surnames. Their last names would be things like uh, Moreno, Romero, um, or terms that, uh, surnames that weren't um, Spanish, like Mitrani, uh, that literally means from Trani, this town in Italy, but which American immigra uh, immigration officials didn't read as Jewish. Right? So there were quite a number of Jews, uh, Sephardic Jews in particular, in places like Mexico or in Cuba, who passed as Spaniards um, or as Mexicans or as Cubans in coming to the United States. Their names didn't highlight that they were not indeed originating from those places. And because they spoke a form of Spanish already, they spoke Ladino, most American immigration officials would be unable to distinguish between the Spanish of Mexico and the Ladino, uh, the Spanish-inflected Ladino of somebody from Edirne who had been in Mexico for several months and was then going to the United States. So that was one strategy. Um, another thing was fake papers. There was a whole industry in the circulation of, of fake papers. And consular officials were sometimes in on this. Mexico actually had this large scandal in, in Constantinople in 1924 when it tried to open a, a, a consul there. And the honorary consul that was in charge of representing Mexico was both accepting bribes from Jews in Mexico whose relatives, or Jews in, in Constantinople whose relatives in Mexico had died in order to get their estates in Mexico, but also selling Mexican passports to people who wanted to tr travel as Mexicans, if not go to Mexico. Another strategy uh, of sort of getting around, you know, contending with these, these regulatory restrictions. Um, for example, in 1928, Mexico passed a law that individuals from Turkey would not be able to immigrate to Mexico, regardless of religion, um, but that individuals from Greece could. So there were a number of people who 
somehow acquired papers that said, I'm from Izmir, Greece. I'm from Kirklise or Kirklareli, which is the Turkish name now, Greece. I'm from, you know, X city that was by that point clearly part of the Turkish Republic. And when they left those places was either part of the Ottoman Empire or part of the Turkish Republic. So this is not people leaving Izmir when it was under Greek occupation, saying that they were Greek. Um, when there was a restriction in place against Jews coming into Mexico. There were, I, my, one of my favorite examples was a woman um, from Edirne who had first gone to Havana. And her she and her family had lived in Havana for several decades. And then after the sugar industry collapsed in Havana, moved with her family to Mexico. And when she was moving there, it was after a point where Jews were not permitted to, to enter Mexico. So she says that she's Greek Orthodox, right? And how do you verify the religion of somebody? But what's fascinating on this is that on her visa to enter Mexico, she signs her name, Rebecca Mitrani, which is a very Sephardic name for those who can recognize it. She signs her name in Hebrew characters, right? She uses the Ladino script to sign her name on this document saying that she's Greek Orthodox. But presumably to the Mexican official, that was Greek. How does he know that the script he doesn't recognize is Ladino and not Greek? So little strategies like that helped people to game the system or get around these, these particular restrictions. And, and I find it over and over again, very quickly responding to changes in laws or changes in political circumstances. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about that is, of course, to remember like, how new some of these technologies of surveillance were and to really understand how little people took them seriously and sort of how cavalier they are, like, whatever, you know, just let me in the country. Like, it wasn't this kind of... It was the only the beginning of the idea that, like, that kind of issue of papers and stuff would be a source of tension or anxiety. People thought, like, you know, we'll, we'll make it work. That's certainly something that comes out of... Uh, the historical experiences of people such as you discuss. And it's also remarkable that a community whose origins lay in their expulsion of Spain in 1492 are able to leverage that his, like Spanish identity to move to the Americas. Yeah, and this becomes really fascinating, actually, by the time we get to post-revolutionary Mexico in the 1920s, um, that part of the post-revolutionary Mexican um philosophy and ideology was creating a, a cosmic race, a raza cosmica, this fifth race that was an admixture of various different racial groups. Um, and that a key part of that, though, was this, this, um, this particular Spanish connection. And Mexican officials actually wanted in particular to encourage the migration or the immigration of Sephardic Jews to Mexico because they deemed them as being assimilable, as being Spanish, mm -hmm. while they drew distinctions between those Jews and Jews from the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire and Jews from Eastern Europe. So when I spoke of this, um, scandalous Mexican embassy or consulate in Istanbul. Um, this was actually founded with the deliberate purpose of trying to, in part, attract Sephardic migration to Mexico away from Argentina. 
And the person, the advocate for opening this consulate, who was the Mexican ambassador to Vienna, uh, to Austria, actually says Jews are disloyal to, you know, the, and they cause damage to every country that they set foot on because they have no sense of patria, of patriotism, of homeland. But these Jews, these Spanish Jews in Turkey have retained Spanish for over 400 years. And so this proves that they are assimil assimilable and that they have a sense of patria. And so it's precisely that Spanish heritage that is then invoked to mark Sephardic Jews in particular as desirable immigrants in post-revolutionary Mexico. And I mean, that's one of the things that stands out of that history. You know, the story you told about this migration networks, passing through Cuba, Mexico, the same could be said for Arab migrants, for uh, Jews from Eastern Europe, for Polish migrants, anyone who's trying to get around the quotas, for example, in the U.S. But this whole like connection, this assimilability uh, connection in uh, Latin America is, of course, very striking and, and like really a, a, it's, a, it's one of these rare kind of historical coincidences almost because the, the two things don't seem that related. Right. And it's actually something that's, you know, say in the Ladino press also of that same period, there were people who were um, who had previously immigrated to the United States who had then were advocating for Sephardic Jews not to try to enter the U.S., but rather to go to Latin America. And these articles talk about language and they talk about cultural similarity and they talk and they say, you know, both the Mexican people and the Sephardic people were born in 1492. Right? They came out of this sort of encounter with Spain in some way that was formative. And because of that, this is a place where we have similar characteristics. We have similar ideas of how the world works, of how politics work. This is not foreign to us. Even the language is similar. And so this is something discussed in the Ladino press in New York. Um, as well as in um, in Turkey at this time, about why Mexico or Cuba would be desirable locations. You know, for many Sephardic Jews, and particularly for those who were, say, not well-educated, Ladino was a marker of Jewishness in the Ottoman Empire. And there are stories that I think are probably apocryphal at this point. They can't possibly be true, but almost every immigrant who tells often her story as opposed to his story talks about coming off the boat in Veracruz in Mexico in the major um, migration port in Mexico and looking around and saying, oh, I didn't know this country was populated all by Jews because they heard Spanish and assumed that everyone there must be Jewish because the only people they'd heard speaking a form of Spanish before were Jewish. And this must have contrasted a little with their experience in the U.S., certainly parts, certainly parts of the U.S., where that same Spanish heritage, let's say, would be read as perhaps a Mexican heritage that, or somewhere from Latin America that during the 30s, it takes on an increasingly negative connotation in the context of the Great Depression and some of the policies that are being carried out against Mexicans, just like the widespread fear of them. And I've, I've read about, you know, Sephardic people living in, say, New York City who actually somehow end up connected to 
the Hispanic communities that are that are sort of building New York's what what is now like Harlem in these regions of, of New York. Um, can you talk more about that uh, encounter as well? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we often think of when we think of Jewish history writ large of the Lower East Side and Yiddish as being sort of the, the quintessential New York immigrant, Jew, Jewish immigrant experience. Um, and in contrast, many of the Ladino speaking Jews um, initially in um, in New York initially ended up in um, what we might call Spanish Harlem, so north of Central Park and on the east side of, of the city. And this was a neighborhood that was also heavily populated by individuals from Puerto Rico, um, as well as from elsewhere in the Caribbean and in, in Latin America. And, you know, there are a lot of stories of, you know, sort of cautionary tales for women in particular, uh, Jewish women speaking Ladino in public on the train, thinking that no one in New York could possibly understand them, but they're speaking next to a Puerto Rican man, and he hears them speaking about these very vulgar things that only women should talk about with their husbands, and then assumes that they're prostitutes. And, and stories like this are published in the New York Ladino press as sort of cautionary tales for women, for Jewish women to behave modestly in public because people actually can understand them in the particular neighborhoods in which they're navigating. This is a, you know, the 20s were a time in Turkey of intense nationalism and intense nation state building. And Jews were held up as being, being foreign precisely, or being guests and ungrateful guests for continuing to speak Ladino. So with the citizens, uh, citizens speak Turkish campaign um, in the late 20s in Turkey, but even before that, um, in 1925, there was a huge uproar over in Istanbul, and then that reverberated throughout Turkey, of a Spanish opera troupe visiting Istanbul and Sephardic Jews singing along to that. And this, this sort of Spanish heritage and the use of Ladino and the knowledge of the Spanish language was being held up as a reason why Jews could not or were not assimilating um, or productive members of this new Turkish nation state. So at the same time as sort of the Spanish origins are being demonized or devalued in places like Turkey or the United States, they're being held up as positive in Latin America. And it speaks to how, and it speaks to how, you know, the Ottoman Empire truly was kind of a refuge for these people. They were able to operate very freely for many centuries. And even right down to the last days of the Ottoman Empire, if you compare what kind of happened to Greeks and Armenians, many of whom spoke Turkish but had a different religion, Christianity, and, you know, there was marked in all sorts of ways that uh, made them subject to um, persecution and violence. That's less so the case for the Ladino-speaking community of Jews in Salonika and Istanbul, but then with the rise of like an ethno-linguistic nation-state as opposed to an, an empire, it totally changes the situation for them. Right, yeah. So I, th I think one thing that contrasts Jewish experiences in the late Ottoman Empire from uh, that those of other religious minorities like Greeks and Armenians is that Jews were not the f target of violence or sort of uh, coherent expulsion campaigns at the end of the empire. And it wasn't really until the rise of the Turkish Republic and this ethno-nationalism, that uh, sort of ethno-linguistic nationalism that emerged that this became a place that was unfriendly or could be perceived as unfriendly for 
for Jewish uh, residents. Well, I want to return to one last thing you mentioned, which is the gender dimension of migrant experience. When you're looking at an individual's experience, these things really matter. And, and in our series, we've looked at how immigration and indeed deportation uh, play out differently for women than men in a lot of ways. Maybe you could talk more about that. The migration of uh, Sephardic Jews was not dissimilar to that of many other groups in the uh, sort of the age of mass migration, in that it tended to, the early migrants tended to be young and they tended to be men. Many of them who arrived in the, the United States, perhaps, but certainly in places like Cuba and like Mexico, started out peddling, um, and particularly in, in textiles and other dry goods, and sort of follows this classic immigrant sort of tale that's not unique to Jews of peddling and then opening a small storefront and a larger storefront, and maybe if you're lucky, a department store and then a factory. And of course, many people didn't follow that whole um, that, that whole trajectory, and it's vastly oversimplified and gives a very rosy picture of what immigration and the migrant experience was. But nonetheless, it is uh, verifiable from the, the immigration records that many of the early migrants were indeed young men. Sometimes these men were single, and sometimes these men had spouses who remained behind. And so, you know, part, when we speak of the gendered experience of migration, we also have to think of this in terms of the women who are now left, uh, married women who are left behind and hoping that their husbands will make enough money to send back to them, that will make enough money either to return and build um, a, a life with more social status in their places of origin not all of the immigrant, not all of the migrants intended to migrate permanently. Many of them intended to return, and some of them did. Um, but also the hope that their husbands would make money and, and bring them over to join them. And this indeed happened at, at some points, um, and it did not happen at quite a lot of other points. So there were many women who were married, sometimes with children, whose husbands went to Switzerland, went to France, went to the United States, to Mexico, to Cuba, to Argentina, to Brazil, to British Rhodesia, and then stopped sending money back and stopped communicating. And these women were then left without recourse often, um, sometimes turning to work as maidservants within um, other Jewish homes throughout uh, the Ottoman Empire or formerly Ottoman lands, and sometimes reliant on the Jewish community to provide them the means by which they could survive, they and their children could survive. Um, and this was made particularly egregious by um, a, a caveat within Jewish law that a woman wh whose husband has disappeared cannot remarry. So even if a woman had not heard from her husband in decades, she wasn't considered divorced. She couldn't divorce him because he hadn't signed the writ of divorce, which was necessary in Jewish law, and she couldn't remarry. So this in, in Hebrew, it's called, um, this, this, a woman like this is called an agunah, 
which could be translated as a, a chained woman or a grass widow, a woman who is sort of stuck in this this um, holding pattern, essentially, and her life is, is put on hold. Um, and so you see the Ladino press trying to remedy this through tracking down errant husbands throughout the Americas, um, and also uh, the religious establishment of the the Jewish communities, the Sephardic communities in both Turkey and Bulgaria in the 1930s actually tried to change Jewish law so that women whose husbands had abandoned them could be considered divorced. And this was initiated in these Sephardic communities in Turkey and Bulgaria. It needed one other Jewish community to sign off on it, to make it binding, and no other Jewish community in the world would sign off on it. So, but this was an initiative that came out of both Bulgaria and Turkey to try to actually change Jewish law to ameliorate the plight of these young women or these women who were abandoned by spouses. So that was certainly a gendered aspect of the migration experience that could happen whether or not one actually migrated. Um, another thing that we see often is, you know, men would um, particularly with, or, um, we see is that the Jewish communities of Istanbul, of Salonika, and elsewhere bore the brunt of providing for these women whose spouses were abroad and the families of these women whose spouses were abroad who weren't flourishing because being a migrant was very difficult. And in many cases, the Jewish communities would actually fund the women to leave Turkey or Greece and go one step further in the migratory process, particularly to Marseille, and then say, well, once you're there, you're not our problem anymore. The local Jewish communities will have to help provide for you until your spouses or families can bring you over. And you can uh, perhaps imagine the Marseille Jewish community was not particularly happy about this. So there's a lot of back and forth between the Jewish community um, in Marseille and that of Istanbul trying to get Istanbul to stop this practice of sending poor f Jewish women and their children out of Turkey to Marseille and just being stuck there until their husbands could bring them over. Um, but this was also particularly precarious for, for women often because now they were devoid often of extensive family ties. They were in a country where they may or may not speak the language. Um, they had to provide for themselves in some way while they were there. And there were a number of stories um, in oral histories, not in written records, of women in Marseille who had sort of poor women who had left the Ottoman Empire, and were waiting for tickets to Cuba or elsewhere from their husbands or fathers who were abroad, who end up being fall, sort of falling victim to to rape and sexual assault, um, because they were in this very precarious and vulnerable position, and I think that's that's a an aspect of this gendered experience that doesn't show up in archival records often. Uh, because it wasn't something that they reported to authorities, but that comes out in in personal conversations about about this migration, this sort of the threat of 
and the reality of sexual violence for migrant women in particular. Well, on that note, I'd like to conclude with a question about the methodology of writing migration history. We've been talking about Sephardic experiences, but often you read histories that even when they're seeking to deconstruct the categories by which people are categorized and then either excluded or discriminated against and what have you, in sort of labeling people this way, like this is a Sephardic migrant or those are Armenians, these are Arabs, it does a lot to actually reify uh, some of those categories as like fundamentally meaningful in terms of thinking about what that person's life was. And so given that you try to focus so much on individual experiences, how do you see individual stories as disrupting that uh, in a productive manner um, and challenging the categories that in many ways have been part and parcel of people's oppression, even while serving as markers of identity as well? Right. That's a great question. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. And it's you know something that I, I fall guilty or I, you know, I'm guilty of in my own work is using this term Sephardic because it, it does homogenize a group of people and a group of individuals who had very different experiences, often based on city of origin and gender, as well as probably most strongly class um, and, you know, what different class status could confer. I think one of the things that's striking when we look at the patterns of individuals in trying to break down these categories is looking at the networks that they construct for themselves. Right. And thinking about how these networks were meaningful and in what ways were they, they meaningful and in what ways and at what times were they mobilized. And getting a sense of oftentimes that, the, that family proved critical, that people who were in some ways related to you um, was a very strong uh, bond that existed across sea and ocean. Um, I don't work on intellectuals. You know, when I started out my work, I was hoping that there would be some cultural figures that I could find in my research or, you know, some great authors or intellectual figures. And when I was conducting my research, what I did find is that most of the people that I'm working on are, you know, petty merchants. And I work a lot with court cases. I work a lot with migration files. And in these court cases and migration files, there are a lot of letters that are included. And you can read the assumptions into those, those letters because these are not people who are philosophizing. That's another word. These are not people who are thinking in depth about who am I, right? You know, what does it mean to be Sephardic? What does it mean to be Ottoman? That isn't something that those categories don't seem to be mattering to them. You know, or it's not something that preoccupies their energy when they're putting together a court case or trying to find somebody, you know, when they need multiple letters of character uh, witnesses, from character witnesses who will bolster their claims for, a nat for naturalization or will counter um, attempts to expel them, right? Who do they look for when they are trying to find these letters or find these witnesses? Who do they conduct business with? Who do they um, have partnerships with? Where do they get their credit from? 
where who do they marry right is it along the lines of of city of origin in the case of the people that i'm looking at that didn't matter all that much so it's different say from what happens in the in certain places in the united states where there were distinct sephardic communities based on place of origin whether you're salonican or from rhodes or from Izmir mattered a lot. That didn't matter so much if you look at the networks that these people created um, in their business ties and in their family ties within Mexico and Cuba. But what seemed to really matter the most was this shared linguistic background, this language, Ladino, even if they were writing in French or writing in Spanish, the people to whom they were writing and the people with whom they were setting up partnerships might be from a totally different city, but they shared that linguistic bond. So I think that looking at the level of individuals and how individuals created and maintained networks, what type of networks and with whom can complicate um, these established categories of religion, of nation, of citizenship in a way that's, that's, I think, really productive to think through. Well, thank you so much for giving us the time to learn, really, for me, a lot about, you know, just not only the Sephardic experiences, as we're saying, but also just, like, uh, migration in general and, like, what goes in, into it and in terms of, you know, productive ways of, 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 of studying and mapping, like, how people... Uh, make their way in the world. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation uh, and we're so happy to have you on. Thanks so much, Chris. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. And we look forward to uh, the book. Right. So do I. <laughs> <In the future. laughs> um, want to remind our listeners that you want to, if you want to learn more about this topic, visit our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com. We've got a short bibliography as well as some other materials. And please do check out episode number three, of the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast, in which we actually follow the history of, as we said, a Sephardic migrant from Istanbul coming to the U.S. and facing off with the deportation state and sort of all the things that went into his experience and the larger experience of the Sephardic diaspora. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. And until then, take care. <laughs>